Well, I trust this morning you've enjoyed our time together as we have been singing together and thinking about our great God. At this time of year, we tend to sing and have a new energy, it seems, and a new joy or a fresh joy, it seems, when we sing. I mean, our church is getting much and much better, Randy would attest to this, in our singing. It seems like there's something going on with all of you because your singing is so rich and so sweet in these days. But now it's our time in our worship where we worship our Savior through the study of His Word. And of course, we all know that this is the Sunday before we celebrate what we know as Christmas. It's a very focused time of year for the church. Church at large, really, the evangelical church at large, it's focused on a lot of things. It opens opportunities for us to talk with others about our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Just the, the season alone allows for that kind of opportunity, and throughout other times of year, uh, the doors may not seem so open for those to hear it, but this time of year, they're, they're talking about it. They even mention the word Christmas, and our Savior's name is right there. And we know about the Christmas story. We know about all of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. And we know they're full of great wonder, they're full of great blessing, they're full of joy, especially for those of us who believe upon Jesus Christ as our own Savior. So each year as I begin to think about this time, Christmas, and I I read the Scripture surrounding the events of Scripture as we read even a portion of Matthew chapter 1 this morning, and I read those things, I'm continually drawn more to the inner workings of Christmas rather than to the periphery, if you will. Rather than to the event of the day on which Christ was born. I'm more drawn to, to what was happening with all of that on the inside. Um, and of course, I don't want to minimize the events of history in any way. I don't want to minimize the reality of Jesus Christ and His birth by any stretch. If not for the simple fact that it was through that event that God was revealed to us as the Scriptures say, Emmanuel, God with us. The long-awaited Messiah was finally born. The heavens rejoiced as the angels sang at His birth. Even in the obscurity of that event in Bethlehem, the world saw and the world heard through the testimony of those who were there and through the testimony of those who came, the shepherds and the kings who came from afar, they sang and praised the King of glory that He was born, that He had been given to mankind. So the world even heard about it. What a glorious day that was. And my mind in these times continually wonders about all of the things that were happening during that day. Why? Well, because there's much more to that event than just a birth. There was much more involved with the birth of Jesus than we normally tend to think about, at least at Christmas. And this morning I want to focus on a couple of those truths. 
And I want to do that from a passage that we don't normally go to when we think about Christmas. And if you've read your bulletin, then you're probably already there in your Bibles. But if not, please turn in your scriptures to Philippians chapter 2. Because I believe we find here in Philippians chapter 2 the full Christmas reality. The full Christmas reality. And I just want to read for us in Philippians chapter 2 as we focus our attention on two primary realities that are essential if we're to have this full Christmas reality in our minds and in our hearts. One of those realities is the self-emptying of God. The second reality is the self-humbling of God. If we are to understand the full reality, the full weight of the reality of Christmas, then we must see in graphic detail those two truths, the self-emptying of God and the self-humbling of God. Follow along as I read for us, beginning in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul says to the believers in Philippi, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this entire passage, of course, is highlighting the reality of the deity of Jesus Christ and His taking on of humanity. And yet, as profound as that is, and as absolutely mind-blowing for us as that reality is, it is written here by the Apostle Paul so that those who believe in Jesus Christ would have an example for them to follow in their relationship to one another as believers. In other words, it is stating for us in clear terms that before Jesus Christ was born, He was indeed fully God, and He continued to be God throughout His entire life on earth, and now He is still God in the heavens, and yet, being God, He did these unfathomable things for us so that we might glorify Him by having that same attitude with one another. This is the overall driving point of this text. And yet, with that incredible command attached, Paul simply makes it for us here in verses 5 and 6, have this attitude in yourselves, 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Obviously, in the context of Philippians, Paul is using it as a grand example. It's a lesson on the humility that you and I are to exude to one another. The humility expressed in us as Christians is to look like and be like the humility of God Himself. But for our emphasis this morning, I want us to acutely focus on the reality of Jesus Christ's deity. Jesus Christ is God. He has always been God. He has always been the very same in essence as God the Father and God the Spirit. There has never been any diminishing of that reality. In other words, what was true of Christ before the virgin birth and while He was in the glories of heaven, what was true of Him there is and was continually true of Him throughout His entire human life. Say it another way, Christ did not cease to be God when He became man. And that is why it says He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, Christ did not, against the will of the Godhead, He did not hold to His Godness. He did not see it a place of His to exercise a will independent to Himself outside of the reality of the Godhead so that He robbed the Godhead of something by claiming and holding on to something that He was to willingly set aside for a time. He is eternally fully God in every way before, in, and after His birth. So right here out of the gate in this profound passage, Paul is declaring that Jesus Christ is God in every way. Make no mistake about it. Do not continue to deny it. The fact is settled in the glories of heaven and ought to be settled in the minds and hearts of all men because one day all men will in fact proclaim that as the text says. Every tongue will confess the true reality of what this text So, because He is God, that raises some very intriguing realities when we think about Christmas. We think about that baby born in obscurity in a small town in Israel that we know as the town of Bethlehem to two relatively unknown parents. Because we are seeing here what took place with Christ for Him to be God with us. And just as importantly, what took place with Christ for us to be with God. This is the full reality of Christmas. 
This isn't just the the story that we read about. This isn't just the periphery and the, the details of the shepherds and the wise men and Mary and Joseph and the traveling and the going from one place to another as God had orchestrated it all. This isn't just the prophecy of Isaiah in the, in the Old Testament about that time when the virgin would give birth. This is the inner workings. This what is what actually had to happen for Emmanuel to be with us. For God to be with us. The answer to that encapsulates the full reality of Christmas. For Christ to be God with us, what had to happen was, first of all, there had to be God emptying Himself. You see what it says right here in this text? For Christ, Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now we have to notice first and foremost as we think about the full reality of Christmas that no one ever freely did anything to Christ. No one on the human realm, not even anyone in the God realm, did anything freely to Christ. All that ever happened to Jesus Christ as he walked this earth was both endorsed and allowed by the entire Godhead of which he is one. Notice Christ emptied himself, it says. Jesus Christ, verse 5, is the he in verse 7. He emptied himself. So let's not be mistaken. No one took away the godness of Christ. No one outside of Christ took it away and said, you don't have it anymore. No one removed his glory. The text tells us that he emptied himself. And we must understand this emptying in the context of this passage We have to understand it for what it is because it isn't normally what we think. Because when we think of emptying, we think of removing from ourselves all that we are or removing from something all that is there. Our natural understanding is to make something void of what was previously there. Yet, we understand as we speak about the reality of God that God cannot in that kind of way, empty himself of his deity and still be God. Whatever this emptying was, it was not Christ ceasing to be God. So what was the emptying? What was this kenosis, as the original language gives us the word? Fortunately, the context identifies for us what this emptying was. And it was not a losing of something. The emptying of himself was rather the taking on of something. It was a neutralizing, if you will. It was a, a setting aside for a moment. It was a, a, an independent use idea. Maybe better to be understood this way. Something is, is, is in fact neutralized by the adding of something else. 
It isn't that that is removed. It's just simply neutralized by that. But notice first, God the Son added to himself what? He emptied himself by what? By first taking on a servant's place. The emptying of Jesus Christ, Christ himself emptying himself was Christ adding to himself a servant's place. He took the form of a bondservant, it says. So right here we have the first statement that explains what was happening on that first Christmas. God was taking on the essential character and nature of a servant. God himself, the one who is to be worshipped, the one who is king, the one who is to have glory and praise bestowed upon him is actually taking on that which he does not even deserve. He is taking on that of a bondservant's place. The word is doulos. We know that word. We've talked about it in the original language. If you have the same Bible translation that I do, then it says bondservant. That's a great word. But the full weight of the word, doulos, really has the idea of slave. Slave, not slave like we think about sometimes with someone is purposefully abused. No, this is a willing slave. This is someone who wants to be the slave of the master because the master is such a good master. This is that kind of slave. Now think about it. God... The King of kings, the Lord of lords, took on the posture of a slave. The master takes the position of the servant. A slave to whom, though? When it says he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant, who was he a bondservant to? He was a bondservant. He was a slave to God the Father. What an amazing reality of the gospel. John chapter 5 and verse 30. We hear Jesus Christ himself in his humanity say this. I can do nothing on my own initiative. This is God speaking. God in the flesh. God incarnate. God walking the earth saying I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Why? Why is Jesus Christ's judgment just? Why is Jesus Christ's judgment accurate? Why is Jesus Christ's judgment always right? Here's why. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus Christ was never the slave of mankind. He was always the perfect bond slave of God the Father. I came to do the will of my Father who sent me. So his self-emptying, in his self-emptying, he took on that servant's place. He took on that willing slave's place of the loving, gracious master, the Father, God the Father. And notice... Secondly, in his self-emptying, notice what else he does. He identifies with a sinful people. 
He empties himself, verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant, that doulos, that slave of the Father, being made in the likeness of men. He identifies with a sinful people. Some of your translations say that he was made in the likeness of men. Mine says being made in the likeness of men. The, termina- the, the terminology there is not the best translation, I don't believe. Because those terms leave the idea that some outside first, outside force made Christ a man. It was some outside force that, that made him. He was fashioned. In other words, he was made like we were made from nothing. And yet nothing outside of Christ made Christ anything. In other words, what was the action in completing Christ, taking on humanity, was the very act of himself. Christ emptied himself. And in his emptying, he took on, Christ took on a slave's position and took on humanity. He took on the reality of humanness. Part of his self-emptying was his becoming a man. Christ became a man by his own divine working. In other words, he was not made a man, he became a man. What Christ was not previously, that being man, by his doing he became. And in doing so, which is so incredible, he became a real man and yet was not just a man. He was and is the God-man. Christ in his humanity remained God the Son possessed at all times all the fullness of deity. He was fully man, yet without sin, still fully God. And since he became man, as the text says, therefore he was then found in appearance as a man. You notice that, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man. It follows one after the other. It's a logical sequence. Jesus Christ became man, and therefore, since he became man, he was found to be a man. He was in the appearance of a man. It wasn't some other kind of appearance. The word appearance is the word scheme in the original language. That's the word schema. I mention that simply because it's a different word than the word form in verse 7 when you see taking the form of a bondservant. That's the word morphe. And I, I think sometimes people get confused by the word form and appearance. The word form deals with the adjustment of the parts to something else. Right? His, here he is. In the Godhead, here he is in the glories of heaven. He is not a man there. He is not human in heaven. He's full deity, and yet he takes, he morphs this morphe, this form of a slave. Yet appearance is scheme. That deals with the reality of what we discern by our very eyes. We see a man. 
That's who he is. Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God. What appears to our eyes is not a form. It is not just some kind of... uh, some kind of phantom. It is not some kind of just spiritual energy as some people have believed over the years. No, he's really man. He is actually man. Full of blood, full of bones, full of humanity, yet without sin. Now, think with me through this. What happened on Christmas morning was actually God with us. God with us. Like He'd never been with us ever before. Anytime they saw the form of God in the Old Testament, it it was not as man. It was not God with them. This is truly Emmanuel. God with us. Not just the baby in the manger, the baby Jesus born in the manger, born there. How cute, how adorable. Let's celebrate His birthday. That's not the full thing of Christmas. That's not the full reality of Christmas. No, it was actually God with us. And it was God with us so that He might be God for us. That's the second reality that the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians here. The first reality is he emptied himself. The second is he humbled himself. See that? He humbled himself. Not only did God empty himself, but God humbled himself. This is the sum of his entire life on earth. It was a life, get this, of self-imposed humility. Self-imposed humility. We don't like that. Oh, we like it in Christ, but we don't like it in us. We don't even like it when we're called to do that. But his self-emptying and his self-humbling are the main points of this entire passage. They're the main points in Paul's mind as he speaks to the Philippian believers about how they're to respond to one another. All of the other actions within this very text here point to and support those two main truths. He emptied himself and he humbled himself. He didn't regard his godness as something to be held on to, so he took the place of a slave and he humbled himself. Jesus Christ, God, and always being God, did not hold his godness in pride. But even though he is God, he empties himself by taking on the form of a bond slave to the Father. And he becomes a man. And when he had made himself a man, Jesus Christ humbles himself. How? 
how do we humble ourselves? How far do we have to go? How far in this example, Lord, do I have to follow in your steps if I'm a Christian? What is my life to look like on this Christmas day as you looked on the Christmas day that you came and you emptied yourself and you humbled yourself? How far did your humbling go? Here's how far it went first. He accepted that selfless stance. Notice what it says. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Forget this is self-imposed humility. This is not somebody else humbling him. This is not somebody else bringing him low. This is himself. Self-imposed humility. He obeyed even to the point of dying. He didn't come just to be a man and walk the earth and then one day just kind of float out of existence and no longer be around. No, he came and humbled himself to the point of dying. And the form of death was horrific. Horrific. I dare say if any of you decided to draw up your own papers for how you would die, that you would draw it up like Jesus Christ died. His death was on a cross. That's why Paul emphasizes it here in that last phrase. Even death on a cross. I mean, for the Apostle Paul to write that, to the Philippian believers in the mindset of Paul as he understood it and saw it and even saw it physically happen in his day was mind-boggling. It'd be one thing to come and humble yourself and say, yeah, I humbled myself even to the point of death and in a good old ripe age you die. No. No, Christ's death was even death on a cross. The most horrific kind of death in the Roman world. This was the climax of his self-humiliation. This was a death reserved for the worst of criminals, for the unwanted slaves, but never, never for someone who was an actual Roman citizen, let alone someone who was innocent. For the Jews, the cross was that heinous reminder that one was under the curse of God. Here is someone Cursed of God. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ humbled himself to the point of death, even to the point in which he was to be cursed by his Father. A death in the most public and most heinous of ways. It was the public execution of an innocent man. Boy, the cries of the world today, if that actually took place and we knew about it, especially in this country, someone actually innocent being put to death and executed, the cries would go out across the land, and yet here we see it in vivid color. And so right here you have the entire picture of Christmas. You have the the inner workings of what took place so that we might have Emmanuel, God with us, so that He might be the God-man for us. 
Jesus Christ came not simply to be born. We celebrate that at Christmas. We love it. But Jesus came to die. said it before, we know it. Without Jesus' death, there is no Christmas. There is no Christmas. So what was the outcome then? What's the outcome of His self-humiliating? What's the outcome of the self-emptying of Jesus Christ and thereby His self-humiliating? These things brought about because He chose to do it. Verses 9 through 11 give us that. Therefore, in other words, because of this, because of his self emptying, because of his self humiliating, therefore, God, that is, God the Father, along with God the Spirit, highly exalted him. He was raised to the place of even the highest place and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Why? that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You realize you can say, I believe in God. You can say you worship God, but if you don't worship Jesus Christ, guess who you don't worship? God. Every knee should bow. You say, well, I'm human. I'm only human. I mean, I can't do that. I mean, maybe the angels do that. All of those who are in heaven, all of those who are on earth, all of those who are under the earth. That's an implication for Hades, for those even in hell. Why? So that every name, every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. You know what Lord is? Master. He humbled himself to God the Father as a slave to the Master. And now Jesus has been exalted to the place of Master. All of that brings God glory. All of it brings God glory. So God came to us, came to be with us so that God might die for us. Why? So that God would be glorified through Christ and us. How is He glorified by us in this? How is Jesus Christ, who is glorifying God by His self-emptying and His self-humiliating and His dying for us, God being with us, how is God being with us, who is God for us, glorified by us in this? always talk about what God gave us for Christmas. What are we giving God for Christmas? Here's what we should be giving God. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The same attitude of Christ. The same self-emptying. The same self-humiliating attitude. The the taking on the position of a bond slave of one another, the taking on of this humiliating, dying to self so that others might 
receive honor so that we aren't the ones who are holding on to our position and grabbing everything we can so that we can have it all because we deserve it all because after all, I don't deserve what you're giving me. That's why Paul says in verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. What does that mean? Voluntary submission. That's what that means. Voluntary submission. With this voluntary submission of your mind to God Himself. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You see, that's an encapsulated explanation of all that Paul has just written a commentary on in verses 5 through 11. The self-emptying and self-humbling of Jesus Christ is to be the same way we deal with one another. God with us, that He might be God for us, that we might bring glory to Him by living just like He did. By doing the very same thing. Jesus Christ, God the Son, became man so that God the Father would be glorified by all of His creation. So that every tongue should confess so that every knee should bow. It doesn't matter in heaven, earth, or under the earth, no matter where you are, God is glorified by all His creation. Jesus Christ, God the Son, became man so that God the Father might glorify the Son to all of His creation. What's the full Christmas reality? Christ, God with us, God with us accepting a slave's place, identifying with the sinful people, you and I, to become obedient to the point where he would die as an innocent man on a cross deserved only for criminals. So that God might receive all the praise for all eternity from all His creation. So if if that's all true, then Christmas is not so much about the birth of Jesus Christ as it is about His death. Without His birth, He has no death, and without his death, we have no eternal life. Without his death, there is no praise to God. Your life is to be the same self-dying. Is it any wonder that Paul says in verse 12, So then, my beloved, just not, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
because it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work, not for you, but for his good pleasure. You see, the heavens rejoiced on the day of his birth. Why? Because in just a few short years, God's redemptive plan would be fully accomplished through his death. The heavens rejoiced when the angels were telling the shepherds, hey, there's been a king born in Bethlehem. You need to go see. You need to go talk about it. The heavens rejoiced in that because they knew in just a few short years that one born, God who became man, would in fact be God for us on the cross so that we would not have to face the wrath that we are storing up day in and day out by our disobedience and the stubbornness of heart to not repent, to not turn from our sin and embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior. God with us so that He might be God for us. So that He might be glorified by us. That is the full Christmas reality. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for just this short time we've had in your word. We thank you for the profoundness of what we have learned even here today, heard again, read time and time again in our own studies, looked at, been challenged with, and yet the newness of it just in thinking about this holiday what you accomplished on that day when you came. I suppose if we really think about it, it happened on the day that Mary was overshadowed by the Spirit and conceived. As you developed in her womb, from the day of conception, you were fully man. And then that day of birth came and we and humanity got to see you, watch you grow, learn obedience from the things you suffered, so that you might be an example for us to follow in your footsteps. And you died on our behalf, that we might have life in your name if we would believe, if we would entrust ourselves to you, if we would confess with our mouth what you are, who you are, Jesus as Lord, Believe in our hearts that you have been and are raised from the dead. At the right hand of God the Father, you, God of very God, you promised that if we believe that in our heart, that we would have life in your name, that you would grant us the Holy Spirit, that we could live in obedience to you and do what is right, desire the things of your word, desire to honor your name by obedience to it and humble ourselves, empty ourselves, die to ourselves that we might reflect your very character in us. This time of year we think about you in a different way. We think about you in a sense in which you came to earth and all that was involved in that. Oh, what a profound thing that is. Thank you for showing us that this morning. May this be the enduring thought on our mind even this day when we're with family and as we come back tonight even to sing and to celebrate the joy of Christmas. May our hearts sing as the angels sing because we know salvation 
Salvation has a name. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving us who believe. Lord, convict the hearts of those who don't that they might know you as well. And we'll praise you all the way into glory and forever and ever and ever. For you are the Lord of lords and King of kings. Thank you for your grace shown to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.